0: Welcome back to Footsteps in the Attic, the podcast dedicated to all things strange and all things paranormal. It is July 1st, which means, guess what? It is officially Ghostbusters Day, for those not aware. Uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife was supposed to be released relatively soon initially, so the studios had planned a giant Ghostbusters Day Unfortunately, the film has been pushed back, but that does not mean that it is not Ghostbusters Day today. They have decided to press on, and they are going to be releasing the original film in drive-ins all across the country today. So, we're going to have a fun episode today in tribute to Ghostbusters. We are going to dedicate this episode to Ghostbusters and talk all about the film Hopefully I'll give you some facts that you may not have been aware of and we'll just talk all things Ghostbusters today but uh, Before I get into that I was watching this awesome TV show today and it said in 2009 I believe it was the bottom of the Indian Ocean. I could have been wrong on the specific body of water but they found over 3,500 footprints at the bottom of the ocean and scientists cannot explain it. I just wanted to throw that out there because I thought that was cool as hell and that's something I want to explore more and uh, possibly do an episode on it and all things oceanic, but uh, just thought I'd throw that out there. Maybe you can do your own looking up and uh, actually look at the footage of it. It's pretty wild. All right, so we're gonna get into it today. Ghostbusters. I'm actually wearing a Ghostbusters t-shirt because obviously based on what I like to do which is paranormal investigation I have to say this movie was a big influence on my life both in a fun way and in a paranormal way. Um, Obviously I was into the paranormal before the film but hey I am old enough. I'm gonna date myself here I was old enough to remember the original Ghostbusters and see it in the movie. And I can tell you being an 80s child growing up in the 80s that this movie was a huge part of pop culture. I mean, it embedded itself into society and it is one of the films you think of when you think of the 1980s. But we're going to get into that in a minute. And by the way, you may hear me say the phrase fun fact a lot, because there are a lot of side facts within this episode that I'm going to get to, and it may or may not be um, in conjunction with the particular topic that I'm talking about. So if there's a random fact, you're going to hear me say fun fact, and I'm just going to go right into it, (laughs) because there's a lot to talk about when you're talking about Ghostbusters. Um, I also want to apologize, you may hear my fan in the background, but to be honest with you, it is just too damn hot not to have the fan on. So, here we go. In 1984, this film was written by Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd. Now, what I don't think most people know about Dan Aykroyd, other than being extremely funny and intelligent, is that he actually has a background in the paranormal. Uh, Growing up in Canada, his father actually wrote a book on ghosts, and it was called A History of Ghosts. And his grandfather owned a haunted farmhouse and actually was one of the pioneers in communicating with spirits. He actually attempted to communicate with spirits using radio waves, which is sort of like the modern day ghost box that you've seen on a lot of like paranormal TV shows. So Dan actually was deep into it. Like he grew up with this being an accepted phenomenon in his household, which I think is awesome. And he's a big advocate for the paranormal. Dan has produced a lot of paranormal-based TV shows, and it's a genuine passion for him. But in the 80s, obviously, he was a big pop you know, icon with Saturday Night Live, and he really wanted to write a film to sort of be a launching vehicle for him and his good friend, John Belushi from the Blues Brothers. So uh, in the original script, Ackroyd's sort of concept was for the Ghostbusters to travel through time and space and like combat demonic and interdimensional threats. But you have to remember this was in the 1980s where special effects were not like they are today, where they can be easily computer generated. So, Aykroyd was paired with Harold Ramis to make the film, let's see, like a little more simple, <laughs> and to also set it in New York City, which had a lot of advantages for aesthetic reasons, and just um, the budget would not go out of control that way. You could actually have it in a metropolitan setting, which seemed to make sense for potential producers. The film itself, when it was underway, took about four months to shoot between October of 83 to January of 1984. And the actual film was released on June 8th, 1984. And I just have to tell you again, this movie just exploded. I mean, when you went to this film, and I remember it, it was like an event. And people were like lined up around the block, and... I mean, everything was Ghostbusters, let me tell you. I mean, no matter where you turned, you were watching the music video on TV or you were seeing an ad for it or a T-shirt. Like, this thing was just gangbusters. (laughs) Um, Now, to show you some context on how big the film was for the time, it had a budget of about $25 million. Now, think about the 1980s. The box office gross domestically for that time was $295.7 million. The 1980s, that kind of number. I mean, that's how big a phenomenon this movie was. And let's not also forget the soundtrack, which was huge. It went to number one, so Ray Parker Jr. was not complaining on that one. Um, but we all know that the effect on this movie was huge so it did eventually spawn a sequel in 1989 um, despite I think Bill Murray's initial reluctance to do a sequel because he's not big on sequel but you know what numbers are numbers and if you throw a big enough check you can get coaxed into pretty much anything so there we go (laughs) this movie spawned a cartoon series toys Lunch boxes, cereals, I mean you name it, Ghostbusters had its logo on everything. Now, we all know in 2016 they attempted a reboot, and I'm just going to throw it out there. The thing was horrible in my opinion. Um, I just, I didn't like anything about it. I, I just, it was not working. If you don't get the original actors in the roles, it's just not going to work at all. Um, but we know that there's a Ghostbusters 3 in release in 2021 now. It's been pushed back. But the studio realized, hey, we have to continue on the legacy that's already been established. But, you know, unfortunately, this movie is not going to feature Harold Ramis because he has since passed away. But the original cast members will be returning. But, you know, I'm going to be honest here. I haven't absolutely loved the trailers that I've been seeing for it just because I believe it sort of looks like Stranger Things, like just a continuation of Stranger Things. Um, I mean, I'm going to reserve judgment, but I just think, hey, if you're bringing the gang back together, focus on the gang being brought back together one last time. I understand studios want to think like longevity, and they want to spawn these franchises, but not everything spawns a universe and a franchise. Sometimes people just want to see that band get together, one last time, and I think that's really more how they should have approached the film. But hey, you know what? Regardless, it's going to end up getting my money. I will go see it. So there we go. (laughs) I want to talk about some fun facts about the original movie. So we're going to start with some casting. Um, As I alluded to earlier, originally Dan Aykroyd saw himself in the film along with his really good friend John Belushi, and Not many people know this. He really wanted Eddie Murphy in the film as well. Um, Dan even crafted the dialogue in the film specifically for John Belushi. Now, fun fact, John Belushi does get paid tribute in the original movie. Not a lot of people know this, but the effects team was specifically instructed to copy John Belushi's mannerisms and facial expressions for the character of Slimer. So when you see Slimer in the film, you're really supposed to think of like John Belushi in Animal House when he's doing that zit popping scene because the very first scene that Slimer's in, he's like stuffing his face. Well, that is a tribute to John Belushi. So it may change the way you look at that movie when you see that scene. Now, Bill Murray being in the movie was considered absolutely essential to the success because you know he was a big deal as a big deal as he is today because Bill Murray's Bill Murray so he can pretty much do what he wants <laughs> and justifiably so. So in agreement for his participation in Ghostbusters, the producers agreed to fund a drama that Bill Murray had co-written called Razor's Edge which some of you may be familiar with. I mean, they didn't really mind whether Razor's Edge made money or lost money. They really just wanted Bill Murray in Ghostbusters and that was their way To do it now, the part of Winston Zedmore went to one of my boys from Philadelphia, because Philly was represented in the movie. um, Ernie Hudson, who's a great actor, and he had to audition about five times for the role. And it was said that Dan Aykroyd again really wanted Eddie Murphy for the part. But another fun fact is Gregory Hines was also considered. For this role, because he was kind of a a comedic big deal at that point. Um, He did that movie with Billy Crystal, um, which is now escaping my memory what that movie was called. But Gregory Hines was actually pretty funny, so he was under consideration for it. But Hudson wanted the part so badly that he actually agreed to do it for half his salary. And it should be noted, though, that the part of Winston initially had a much bigger role. And I don't think this is going to shock anyone, but the studio actually slashed his backstory because they wanted to give Bill Murray more screen time. But initially, um, Ernie Hudson's role of Winston was supposed to have a background as like a demolitions expert and really go into his backstory, but obviously that was nixed. Now, fun fact, Julia Roberts actually auditioned for Sigourney Weaver's role of Dana Barrett. Weaver won the producers over, though, because she came into the audition howling (laughs) and walking like a dog, and even suggested to director Ivan Reitman that at some point in the film, her character get possessed by, like, a dog-like creature, which, of course, ended up making it into the film because there was Zool. So... We kind of have Sigourney Weaver to thank for Zool, which I think is like awesome. Now, here's a really fun fact, which I really could see um, I could see this having had worked if it hit a, you know if the casting had gone to plan, but John Candy was originally offered the role of Louis Tully, which of course ultimately went to Rick Moranis. Now, Rick Moranis was freaking Amazing in this movie, but I definitely could have seen John Candy pulling it off, especially if you think of John Candy's character in the first vacation film where he's kind of like a dork. I I could see that, but um, John Candy said he was having trouble like connecting with who the character was and he wanted to play Tully as a German dog lover with like a thick accent. And I'm kind of grateful if that was his take on it, because I don't think that would have worked. And I think the um, production crew, along with John Candy, all kind of agreed, you know what? Why don't we just uh, call today on that and we'll we'll find someone else for this part. But hey, you know what? John Candy again is John Candy. He's amazing. So uh, I'm never going to knock John Candy because I love all his work. But, hey, Rick Moranis. I mean, he's iconic in that part. That's probably the part that people think of when they think of Rick Moranis. Maybe that in like, Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> um, fun fact, the part of the secretary, Janine, was actually offered to Sandra Bernhard, but she ended up passing on it, so the role went to Annie Potts. And I'm really glad that it did, because I'm not a big Sandra Bernhard fan, and I couldn't see her pulling it off comedically the way Annie Potts did. But um, when Annie Potts was set to film her first scene, she was actually late. And so the hairdresser just quickly handed her her glasses to wear for the scene and Potts ended up wearing them throughout the entire series. And I think it's one of those things that you think of when you think of the character Janine. So I thought that was really cool. Here it was this rushed thing and it ended up really working for the movie. Now, here's a crazy fact, which might be the craziest casting fact of all. Gozer the Gozerian almost went to Paul Pee-wee Herman Rubens. Can you believe that? Like 1980s, Paul Rubens was kind of everywhere, so everyone like wanted like Pee-wee Herman and stuff, but I can't see Paul Rubens playing Gozer the Gozerian. Uh, especially because the producers initially envisioned this part of uh, Gozerian wearing like a suit and Rubens thankfully passed so the character was sort of reworked as this like androgynous sort of like David Bowie like character which I think like really worked for the movie because it was just like I don't know that character was just really creepy and I the actor's name escapes me now sorry there's a lot of facts but I think it was a Polish actor was cast in the role of Gozer the Gozerian, but it just it all worked out exactly as it was meant to. Uh, By the way, sorry for the random beeps. I'm getting some messages as I record this, so I do apologize. Um, Now, the Marshmallow Man was actually portrayed by an actor. Some people don't know that. They think, hey, this was a puppet, but this is the 1980s, and they did have an actor named Bill Bryan in the suit, and... My friend Glenn's going to love this, but he actually patterned the Marshmallow Man's walk after Godzilla, and there were about 18 suits needed in total for the role. In that famous scene where the Marshmallow Man exploded, there's a fun fact here. It was not actually marshmallow used on set. Some people think that it was, but they actually used shaving cream instead, and in fact, 75 pounds of shaving cream. Now, if you buy some shaving cream, you can feel how light it is. So imagine enough girth to actually feel 75 pounds worth of shaving cream for and then that's sprayed onto the actors. That's a lot of shaving cream. And there was so much used in that scene that every one of the cast actually developed rashes. So that was not as fun to shoot as it may have appeared. Now, um, Dan Aykroyd was actually eventually able to convince famous producer Bernie Brillstein to get on board with the film prior to shooting. Now, what I found really cool is that he showed him sketches of the marshmallow man and he just said, hey, you know, if I need to sell you this movie quickly, just think of three exterminators. But instead of hunting rats, they're hunting ghosts. And I thought that was cool. But um, fun fact with me personally is I actually used to work with Bernie Brillstein's son I did a sketch show here in New York years back and uh, Bernie's son was named Mike but I had no idea his father was Bernie Brillstein because we just called him Mike B so little did I know his dad is like responsible for Ghostbusters So I thought that was wild. And it's funny how long it took me to realize that he was Bernie Brillstein's son. But hey, you know what? He was a great guy, like very humble, and I don't think he wanted attention. But very random fact there in this uh, Ghostbusters episode. (laughs) Um, Again, prior to shooting, the script was written by Ramis and Aykroyd in about two weeks after Ramis and Aykroyd basically locked themselves in one of Aykroyd's homes in Martha's Vineyard. And some of the concepts that were originally meant for the film, but never made it to screen were for the Ghostbusters to have a boss who directed them in like specific missions and uh, an asylum scene where there was like a bunch of dead celebrities and even a hidden storage facility in New Jersey, which is kind of cool because I'm currently living in New Jersey. I could definitely see, especially in certain parts of New Jersey, it looks like a a storage facility. (laughs) Not knocking New Jersey. Uh, I love New Jersey, or at least parts of it, but uh, I could definitely have seen that working in the movie, but I guess they wanted to keep it all like New York bound. And the great thing about me having access to New York is I can go to the original firehouse, which I believe is on East 4th street and the movie that Dana Barrett's character lived in, which is on 57, I think central park, West central, I believe No, Central Park West, 57. That's the building they used, and they called it Spook Central in the movie. Uh, I believe it was Bill Murray's character named it that. Now, um, there were some legal disputes over the Ghostbusters name, because there had been a series that was produced, I believe, in Europe called the Ghostbusters. So some of the other titles being considered were the Ghost Stoppers, the Ghost Breakers, and the Ghost Smashers. But thankfully, I think they cut a big check and Ghostbusters ended up prevailing, thankfully. And, uh, you know, getting down to the final finals of this, um, Aykroyd, Dan Aykroyd actually likened the characters of Egon, Ray, and Peter on the Tin Man, the Lion, and the Scarecrow, which I thought was really cool. I had never thought about that before. But um, apparently that was his little wink to The Wizard of Oz. Now, I've been talking for about 20 minutes straight, so I want to end this by saying that my first, one of my first experiences moving to Manhattan was, uh, it was tough. You know, I was really adjusting from life in Philadelphia to New York City. And I had seen a couple celebrities, but, you know, I thought that was, I was like, oh, wow, like I was kind of starstruck. But, you know, you get used to it in time. But one of the coolest moments I had in New York was, I was staring at Madison Square Garden and right next to me appeared Rick Moranis with his children. And I'm not going to lie, he kind of looked like his Lewis Tully character because he had these thick glasses on and he was wearing a suit. And I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm actually having like a Ghostbusters moment here because I'm standing in the middle of Manhattan with, uh, you know, I'm thinking more of his character Tully right next to me with his two children which I thought was just like a really cool little, you know, welcome to New York as my voice cracked a little bit, but I thought it was like a really cool welcome to New York little wink for me because I was like, yes, I am in Ghostbuster country. So I thank you so much for listening to this. I know we're at the 22 minute mark, so I'm going to wrap it up, but I hope you all enjoy your official Ghostbusters day. I know I'm going to, I got my t-shirt on. I'm probably going to watch the movie later And yes, I do own a couple Ghostbuster action figures. I'm not going to lie. No, I don't play with them. They're just for display only, but uh, I'm a big fan of the movie. I have a really rare one, which uh, I keep sort of in, in hiding because I don't want anything happening to it. But, uh, Hey, I love Ghostbusters. Obviously I think you all do too. And I want to thank you for listening to this. And uh, I would play the Ghostbusters theme, but that is heavily copyrighted, so that's not going to happen. But I hope you continue to listen to this. We've got some cool episodes coming up. Very creepy stuff, but it was fun to do just a, a more lighthearted episode for a change. All right. For Brian Hobson, which is me, this has been Footsteps in the Attic.